Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode is part six, if you can believe it, part six of General Conference McNuggets covering the highlights of General Conference from October of 2019. Once again, my goal is to try and get through the talks in the last General Conference prior to the upcoming General Conference this weekend. Today is April 1st, Wednesday, 2020. And I have to be honest with you, I had expected just to hit the highlights of last General Conference and to do really one episode, two probably, at the most. Once again, hitting only the highlights of General Conference. That's why I titled this General Conference McNuggets, with that idea in mind that we would just be hitting a handful of important points. But as I have looked deeper and deeper into the talks from General Conference, I find that there is more and more to talk about. And now we're up to episode six in this series, and I expect there will have to be an episode seven and perhaps even an episode eight to cover all the talks of last General Conference in the detail that I think they deserve. So instead of titling this General Conference McNuggets, perhaps I should have titled it as General Conference Double Quarter Pounder with Cheese. As I say, today is Wednesday, April 1st, 2020. We remain in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic sweeping the world. Last night, on the evening of March 31st, 2020, there was a 6.5 magnitude earthquake in Boise, Idaho. This follows up on the earthquake, which was a 5 point something earthquake from the week before in Salt Lake City. So last week we have an earthquake in Salt Lake City. Last night we have an earthquake in Boise, Idaho, which I think it is fair to say are two large cities inhabited predominantly by Mormons. I don't know exactly what God is trying to say by placing these earthquakes in Salt Lake City and Boise, but whatever it is, it does not sound like God is very pleased with the Mormon church. I mean, if the shoe were on the other foot and there was a big earthquake in the Vatican, I expect that most members of the LDS church would rush to the conclusion that God is not happy with the Catholics. So I don't know exactly why God is so unhappy with the Mormons, but I think it's probably time for them to consider repenting of whatever it is that God's upset with them about. Now, I am currently covering talks given in the women's session of General Conference last October. And specifically, I'm going through the talks that were made by the three members of the First Presidency. I went over President Eyring's talk last episode. I went over Elder Oaks' talk last episode. And tonight, I want to get to President Nelson's talk as he spoke last in the Women's Session of General Conference. But before I get to President Nelson, there are a few other comments I want to make about President Eyring's talk and about President Oaks' talk. Let's go to President Eyring first, shall we? President Eyring is speaking to the women of the church, and in the course of his comments, he makes the following statement. Your call began when you were placed into mortality in a place and time chosen for you by a God who knows you perfectly and loves you as his daughter. So here we start seeing President Eyring's view of God, which is a common view among Mormons, which is that God is a complete micromanager. Every single little thing that happens to us in our lives is managed and caused by God. Now that's all well and good as long as things are going well in our lives, but if things are going badly in our lives, indeed if we are born into a house where we are the subject of abuse, sexual, physical, emotional, by our mother or father, then this line of thinking starts to run into problems. Especially when President Eyring says that we are put into mortality in a place and time chosen for you by a God who knows you perfectly and loves you 
as his daughter? Well, if he loves the women as his daughter, why is it that so often God places them in families and situations where they are subject to abuse? That is a question he does not address. He goes on to make it very clear he's talking about placing them in Latter-day Saint homes, faithful Latter-day Saint homes. He says, in the spirit world, he, that's a capital H, he, God, knew you and taught you and placed you where you would have the opportunity, rare in the history of the world, to be invited into a baptismal font. So that's how he says that they're placed into a faithful Latter-day Saint family, because obviously that's the circumstance in which when they become eight years old, then they get baptized. If they're not in a faithful Latter-day Saint family, the odds are they're not going to get baptized in the LDS church when they're eight years old. Now, this is a very common belief in the LDS church, and I'm glad that President Iring talked about it here because I want to say a few things about it. First off, now the LDS church is unusual in that it believes not only in an afterlife for those here in mortality, but a pre-life, a pre-mortal existence for those who live here in mortality. What we share in common with other Christians is the idea that we will be resurrected or we will continue to live on after this life and that depending upon what you have done in this life, the way you have conducted yourself in this life, whether it's works or belief or grace or however you want to phrase it, that our rewards in the afterlife are dependent upon what we do here in this life. Now, because Mormons believe in a pre-mortal earth life, they tend to see this life as the rewards or punishments for what they did in the pre-mortal existence. It's a simple matter to look around and see people born in different circumstances in this life. Some are born into affluent families, some are born into very poor families, some are born with privilege, some are born with an absolute lack of privilege. Some are born to live a life of ease, some are born to live a life of penury and hard labor. So there are all sorts of different circumstances that people are born to in this life, some better, some worse. Now, if you don't believe in a pre-mortal existence, you can have a tough time explaining why it is that a God that loves all of his children would have some of his children born into a wonderful existence and others of his children born into an absolutely horrible type of existence for their entire lives. Mormonism, however, has the answer to that problem. And the answer that Mormonism proposes to that problem is that just as rewards and penalties in the afterlife will be predicated upon what we do here in this world, the rewards and penalties, and I put those in quotation marks, that we receive here in this world are predicated upon the actions that we took in a pre-mortal existence. In fact, because Mormons believe in a pre-mortal existence, it is almost inevitable that we would come up with this belief, even though it is nowhere stated in scriptures, to my knowledge, that this is the case. In other words, we certainly have in scriptures the Grand Council in heaven, the war in heaven, the fact that a third of the hosts of heaven followed after Satan and were cast out into the earth without ever getting a body and without ever getting a chance to be born in mortality in this world. And the other two-thirds who followed Jesus in the war in heaven do have the opportunity to be born in mortality in this world. What is not set forth in scripture, however, is that the circumstances under which we are born in this world is predicated upon what we did or did not do in the pre-mortal existence. But as I say, this belief is virtually inevitable because of the fact that we believe that our future eternal rewards and punishments will be based upon what we do here. It is difficult to get away from the idea that the different circumstances under which people are born here and the different lives they live is predicated upon what we did in the pre-mortal existence, even though we were all among the two-thirds that sided with Jesus in the war in heaven. And in that sense, we were on the right side. We did the right thing. We were the good guys. Nevertheless, amongst that two-thirds, 
there were different degrees of righteousness. And based upon those different degrees of righteousness, God, the ultimate micromanager, selects different circumstances and times and places, as President Irie says, for us to be born in this life. And from a Mormon perspective, the absolute ultimate best circumstance to be born into in this life is into a faithful LDS family, where we will be raised with the gospel and baptized into the church. Therefore, the most righteous of those in the pre-mortal existence are those who are born into the church. Now, as I have said before, the good thing about a belief in a pre-mortal existence is that it explains all the different circumstances under which people are born here in this earth. And the bad thing about a belief in a pre-mortal existence is that it explains why people are born in all the different circumstances in this earth. The good thing about it is also the bad thing about it. And similarly, the good thing from President Eyring's point of view is that he can say, because God knows us perfectly and loves us, he placed us where we would have the opportunity to be invited into a baptismal font. Well, what about the vast majority of other members of this planet who are not placed into an opportunity where they can be invited into a baptismal font? Does that mean that God does not love them as much as he loves those that are placed in that circumstance. That's the dark side. That's the flip side of this statement. And if we were righteous enough and loved enough by Heavenly Father to be placed into a righteous LDS family, what about all those other people who are not placed into a righteous LDS family? Well, the necessary corollary to that is that either God did not love them as much, which I don't think President Irene would really subscribe to if you asked him to his face, but it must be something else. They were not righteous enough. In some way, they were not as valiant or as righteous or as obedient or as faithful in the war in heaven. And therefore, they were placed in a situation where they would not be invited into a baptismal font. And of course, the problem here is that this is the exact same rationale being promoted by President Ivering, or at least the flip side of his rationale is the exact same rationale that supported the denial of the priesthood two black men for over a hundred years in the LDS church. It denied the priesthood to black men. It denied their entrance into the temple. It also denied the entrance of black women into the temple. In short, this is the rationale that was used to justify treating blacks as second-class citizens in the LDS church for over a hundred years. So if we take President Eyring's statement seriously, and I think most Latter-day Saints would, the doctrine that we pushed out the front door by saying that we now disavow the teachings of past church leaders about why it is that blacks could not get the priesthood, what we have pushed out the front door is slowly and quietly creeping in the back window. Can I tell you a little story here from my mission? I served my mission in Japan, as most of you know, and sometime about a year and a half into my mission, I was a zone leader, and I remember that we had some other Japanese members of the church over to the missionary apartment, and these were guys, they were young guys. One of them was a really great guy. He was a friend of mine. He wasn't as young as I was, and we were sort of wrestling around in the missionary apartment and having a good time, and then we quieted down, and I remember this one Japanese member of the church sharing with me sincerely his understanding of the fact that he recognized, he knew, he understood that he was not as righteous as I had been in the pre-mortal existence. And he knew that this was evident from the fact that he had been born Japanese and I had been born in America. His skin was darker than my skin. Now, certainly this is back in 1981 and we've come some distance from that today. And yet those teachings are still out there. And I cannot express to you really the discomfort I felt when he was sharing this with me, he was putting me up on a pedestal of some sort based upon where I was born. And in my heart, I felt, no, that's not true. I'm not better than you just because of where I was born. 
But intellectually, I'm thinking, well, yeah, what he's saying is consistent with Mormon doctrine. Now, I had never actually heard of it being used to talk about Japanese people being less than white people. I certainly heard about it in terms of black people being less than white people within the Mormon church. So I remember being very uncomfortable and not openly agreeing with him, but I did not disagree with him either. And I wish that if I could go back in a time machine to 1981 and talk to that Japanese member of the church, that I would actually disagree with him and tell him that that was not true that I was not better than he was, that I was not more righteous than he was in the pre-mortal existence, that I was not more favored of God because of the fact that I had been born American and he had been born Japanese. Because of the fact that I had been born white and delightsome and he had been born not so white and delightsome. And once again, this is something that is not taught openly in the church. And I had never heard taught the idea that Japanese people are less than American people because of where they were born and the lineage that they came through and the color of their skin but I certainly had heard that teaching about black people. And for this Japanese member, it was very obvious that if you took the teaching about black people and extrapolated it, that it would also apply to him only to a lesser degree. Yes, he could join the church. Yes, he could get the priesthood while blacks could not for over 100 years, but he was still less than I was. And unfortunately, this is the type of belief that is engendered among members of the church when we hear expressions such as these by President Eyring. Now, I know he's doing it to try and lift up, to try and comfort, to try and share God's love with the women in the general women's session whom he is addressing. But the consequences of this teaching are far and widespread and can have very negative impacts. So now I want to go to another statement that I missed from President Dallin H. Oaks in his talk, The Two Great Commandments. I spent a lot of time talking about his general argument that if there is a conflict between the first commandment and the second commandment, then the first commandment trumps the second commandment, and why it is that I believe that a study of the New Testament and a study of the teachings of Jesus show that he believed exactly the opposite, that if there's a conflict between those two commandments, it is the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, that trumps the first commandment. But there was something else that President Oaks said in his talk that I think deserves scrutiny, and this is where he he tried to ameliorate the position of the church on homosexuals by saying that there are lots of degrees of glory in the hereafter and that even though homosexuals who do not change their ways and repent will not be able to make it to the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, in other words, they will not be able to be exalted, nevertheless, there are other degrees of glory, other heavens that they will go to even though they're lesser heavens, and so therefore it's not so bad. And this is under his Roman numeral 4 in his talk. This is right after he's talked about, regretfully, some persons facing these issues, i.e. homosexual, LGBTQ issues, regretfully, some persons facing these issues continue to feel marginalized and rejected by some members and leaders in our families, wards, and stakes. Remember, that's where he points all the finger of blame at the members of the church and the local leaders and absolutely no fingers of blame at himself and his fellow apostles who are the ones who are primarily responsible for marginalizing and rejecting this community of people. So that's the context. That's what he's talking about. And right after that, he says this, for reasons we do not understand, we have different challenges in our mortal experiences, okay? So the challenges he's talking about specifically are LGBTQ challenges, as he puts it. But we do know, he says, but we do know that God will help each of us overcome these challenges if we sincerely seek his help. So what is he saying there? Is Elder Oaks actually saying that if we sincerely seek God's help, God will help me overcome my challenge of homosexuality by making me heterosexual? It sounds like that's what he's saying. He goes on, after suffering and repenting 
for violations of laws we have been taught, we are all destined for a kingdom of glory. So this is the point where he tries to put the lipstick on the pig and say, hey, even though you have been homosexual, even though you haven't repented of it and become heterosexual by sufficiently seeking God's help, nevertheless, after you suffer for your homosexuality, after you repent of your homosexuality, you will nevertheless be destined for a kingdom of glory. Now, this gets back once again to the idea of there are two voices that church leaders speak with. There is the voice to the outside world, the voice to the public, and the voice to the inside world, or the voice to the members. Now, we might think that what they say in conference is the voice to the members, but over the decades now, as General Conference has become more and more easily accessible to the outside world, General Conference has really changed from being a forum where we talk to the members of the church and become more a forum where we're talking to the public. What is said now in general conference is what the leaders are saying to the public because the talks they give there are so widely accessible and available to the public. Instead now, the forum for talking to the members of the church directly and using that voice has become talks that are given in firesides or private meetings or missionary training meetings in personal appearances of the apostles to local stakes or wards or regions where before they begin to speak, the admonition is always given to the members, don't record what's being said. And the reason they don't want it recorded is because they're going to be speaking with their inside voice. They're going to be talking about the things that Mormons really believe, as opposed to what it is that they say to the outside world, which sometimes are very different. And this is a case in point and why I bring it up here. In this talk to the outside world, he is basically telling the outside world that homosexuals, regardless of the fact that they are violating the law of marriage and the law of chastity, as he puts it earlier in his talk, are nevertheless bound for a kingdom of glory, which all sounds pretty upbeat, sounds pretty good. But within the LDS context and speaking to members of the church, back in 2016, Elder Oaks had a very different message when speaking to a bunch of missionaries during a missionary training session. And there he said what it is that Mormons typically understand, that if you don't make it to the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, you are damned. That is the definition of damnation because you can't progress any further than that degree of glory into which you are placed forever and ever and ever for all eternity. You are stuck there and you can never progress beyond it. You are damned forever. Now, some of my listeners have been asking why it is that I'm not playing the audio clips from each of these speakers. Instead, I'm reading from their talks. Well, the reason is because it takes a great deal more time for me to be able to produce the program, to go find those audio clips, to do all the things I have to do in order to insert them into the podcast in the appropriate place. And if I were doing one podcast a week or one podcast every two weeks, then I would have the time to do that. But now since I'm producing these on a much more frequent basis during the coronavirus and the home sheltering in order to try and do my bit to help out with morale, I'm not able to do that. But I'm going to try and make an exception for this here. And I'm going to try and find the quote. First off, from President Oaks, in the talk that he gave in last general conference, where he talks about the kingdom of glory, we are all destined for a kingdom of glory, and the talk that he gave in 2016 to the missionaries, where he tells them that anything short of exaltation is damnation. And with the expectation that I'm going to be able to find those quotes, here's the first quote from Elder Oaks in last general conference. Play the tape. Regretfully, some persons facing these issues continue to feel marginalized and rejected by some members and leaders in our families, wards, and stakes. 
we must all strive to be kinder and more civil. For reasons we do not understand, we have different challenges in our mortal experiences. But we do know that God will help each of us overcome these challenges if we sincerely seek His help. After suffering and repenting for violations of laws we have been taught, we are all destined for a kingdom of glory. So that is Elder Oak speaking with his public voice to the public to let them know that homosexuals are going to be bound for a kingdom of glory, and that's the position of the LDS Church. Now here's Elder Oak speaking to the inside voice, to the members of the church at the missionary training in 2016, where he says the opposite, that it's actually damnation, not salvation. Play the tape. From modern revelation, we know that children of God can qualify for a significant heaven or degree of glory without the ordinances of his church. As missionaries called by him and preaching the fullness of his doctrine, we are concerned with something more than a lesser kingdom of glory. The fundamental purpose of our missionary work is to teach the word of God that men and women cannot be saved in the highest degree of glory, the celestial kingdom, without faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Further, we teach that the only way to lay claim to the ultimate merits of his atonement is to follow his commands, repent and be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and the ordinances of the temple, and endure to the end. Those who do so can be exalted in the celestial kingdom instead of being damned in a lesser status or kingdom. So you can see here another excellent example of how it is that leaders of the church will say one thing to the public and say another thing to the members of the church. And frequently those things are very different. Now, in a prior podcast, I had talked about an essay that I had written six years ago where a similar thing happened related to the fact that the LDS Church teaches all its members that they will be exalted if they're faithful and righteous and good Mormons, they will be exalted and that they will be able to create a world that they will inhabit with their spiritual offspring that they procreate as exalted beings and they will rerun the plan of salvation on that world just as we are involved in the plan of salvation on this world. And yet this particular belief sounds so outlandish and so absurd to people who are not members of the church that it is frequently lampooned. And so what sometimes happens is that when a belief that we have is easily lampooned, then what we do is we don't go out and correct that belief and say what it is that we really believe. Instead, we try to effectively deny the fact that we actually do believe that at all. And this is what happened with this idea about Mormons getting their own worlds. And the piece that I wrote back in 2014. Let me see if I can find it for you here because I want to read it for you. Okay, I've got it. The piece was called Lying for the Lord? Question mark. So I should ask it as a question. Lying for the Lord? And it was published in April of 2014. Here's how it goes. The LDS Church is currently engaged in a systematic and officially endorsed effort to misrepresent some of its teachings to the outside world. This is not a new phenomenon. As far back as the Nauvoo period, Joseph Smith publicly and repeatedly denied he was advocating polygamy while simultaneously marrying upwards of 30 women. 
And my source for that is Richard Bushman's book, Rough Stone Rolling, page 491, going on. But attempting a similar feat in the age of the internet is a dicey proposition. The next section is titled, Mormons Don't Get Their Own Planet? I am referring to a recently released essay on the LDS Church's official website titled, Becoming Like God. While the essay should be commended for affirming that divine parentage includes a heavenly mother, such an admission cannot make up for the technicolor prevarication in a different paragraph, where it is claimed that few Latter-day Saints would identify with caricatures of having their own planet. That's quote, unquote, few Latter-day Saints would identify with caricatures of having their own planet. As an active member of the LDS Church for over 35 years, I write, this is news to me. A caricature is a comic exaggeration. I am surprised to discover at this late date that the teaching I have personally heard and read on numerous occasions that faithful Latter-day Saints will eventually have their own planet is a comic exaggeration. It is not an exaggeration at all, comic or otherwise. It is a fact, plain and simple. The church first ventured into this field of revisionist theology about a year ago when it published Answers to Frequently Asked Questions. That's on the LDS Church's website as well. This is found on the official LDS website in the newsroom section. See, this is the outside voice, right, for the newsroom section, which the webpage banner proclaimed is the official resource for news media, opinion leaders, and the public. So we can see that this is definitely speaking with the outside voice to the public. One of the questions that is apparently frequently asked, and I say apparently because the question and answer session says that they are going to answer questions that are frequently asked. One of the questions that is apparently frequently asked is, do Latter-day Saints believe that they will get their own planet? That's how they ask the question in this article on the LDS Church's website. Do Latter-day Saints believe that they will get their own planet? The answer given to this by the church is simple and straightforward if somewhat unexpected. The answer is no. This idea, it goes on, no, this idea is not taught in Latter-day Saint scripture, nor is it a doctrine of the church. The answer goes on. This misunderstanding stems from speculative comments unreflective of scriptural doctrine, period, end of quote, end of the answer. The official LDS Church answer to the question, do Latter-day Saints believe that they will get their own planet? Just to make sure I wasn't losing my mind, I write, I ran a test case by asking my adult daughter this frequently asked question on the church website. I played it completely fair and asked her the same question in the same words. Do Latter-day Saints believe that they will get their own planet? Without hesitation, she answered, yes. So apparently there are at least two Latter-day Saints in the world who would answer that question differently than the church does on its own website. No, wait, there are more than just two. Those would be the prophets, seers, and revelators who have taught this doctrine for over 100 years. My next section is titled, Just the Facts, Ma'am. Brigham Young said, Those who are exalted will be prepared to frame earths, quote-unquote. Orson Pratt taught that the faithful who rise immortal will, quote, form and create worlds, unquote. Lorenzo Snow said, glorified Latter-day Saints will, quote, organize matter into worlds on which their posterity may dwell, 
unquote. And I give sources for all three of those quotes. The one from Brigham Young is found in Journal of Discourses, Volume 17, page 143. The one from Orson Pratt is found in Journal of Discourses, Volume 14, page 242. And the quote from Lorenzo Snow is quoted in the Improvement Era, June 1919, page 659. Thank you very much. But that was a long time ago. Maybe that was just an anomaly. No, wait, there are more. Joseph Fielding Smith wrote, We will become gods and have jurisdiction over worlds, and these worlds will be peopled by our own offspring. Bruce R. McConkie taught regarding exalted parents, quote, For them, new earths are created, period, end of quote. And those sources are, for Joseph Fielding Smith, Doctrines of Salvation, volume 2, page 48, and for Bruce R. McConkie's quote, The Millennial Messiah, page 23. But now I get to President Spencer W. Kimball, the president and prophet of the Lord, when I joined the church back in 1978. Three years before I joined the church in 1975, he had something to say on the subject. And here I read again from my essay. President Spencer W. Kimball said, in addressing the October 1975 priesthood session of General Conference, quote, Brethren, 225,000 of you are here tonight. And then he goes on. I suppose 225,000 of you may become gods. I think God, this is President Kimball, I think God could make, or probably have us help make, worlds for all of us, for every one of us 225,000, period, end of quote. Brethren, it's a great thrill to think that we are part of a congregation of 225,000 men and boys. Some of them are a little darker, some of them have slant eyes, but they're all men and brethren, and we love them. And we're grateful that they're associated with us tonight in this great meeting. Brethren, 225,000 of you here tonight. I suppose 225,000 of you may become gods. There seems to be plenty of space out there in the universe, and the Lord has proved that he knows how to do it. I think he could make, or have us help make, probably, worlds for all of us for every one of us 225,000. Now this is from General Conference Priesthood Session back in 1975. This is the kind of thing you could hear in the church back when I joined the church. But over the past 40 years, things have changed. You would never hear anything like this said in General Conference today. And the reason for that, I think, is because not only is the church slowly backing away from its more unique and unusual doctrines, but also because, as I said earlier, General Conference is becoming something that is more and more public, and therefore the leaders of the church are tailoring their message to the public more in General Conference than they did 40 years ago back in 1975, or actually even 45 years ago. My goodness, how time flies. On another occasion, President Kimball counseled Latter-day Saints to, quote, grow in ability and power and worthiness. Why? To govern such a world with all of its people, period, end of quote. And that second reference is 
his talk, The Matter of Marriage, which was an address delivered by Spencer Kimball at the University of Utah Institute of Religion in October of 1976. You can find that quote in the book, The Teachings of Spencer W. Kimball, on page 31. President Kimball, going on with my essay, President Kimball was the prophet, seer, and revelator of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when he spoke these words, actually both of them, both in 75 and in 76. But perhaps that doesn't make a difference any longer. Maybe 1975 and 1976 are too long ago for it to count. No, wait, there are more. The next section of the essay is titled, When Worlds Collide. What about contemporary iterations of this doctrine? Surprisingly, both these quotes from President Kimball are alive and well in current LDS church manuals accessible on the official website. So this isn't something you have to go digging around in old conference talks to find. You can find them in current manuals of the church, or at least they were current back in 2014 when I wrote this essay. Going on, the former Kimball quote, the one from General Conference 1975, the former Kimball quote is found in the current Doctrine and Covenant student manual. While the latter Kimball quote, the one from 1976, can be found in the Parents' Guide for Teaching Children, ages 4 to 11. It can also be found in the Doctrine of the Gospel student manual, as well as the Doctrine and Covenants and Church History Seminary Teacher Resource Manual. So the second quote from President Kimball can be found in three contemporary LDS sources, and the first one can be found in at least one. Even the manual used to teach investigators and new members contains this information from Lesson 36 of the Gospel Fundamentals Manual, the preface to which avers the principles explained in this book are true. We have the following. Those who dwell in the highest part of the celestial kingdom, quote, will even be able to have spirit children and make new worlds for them to live on, period, end of quote. Now hold on there, Bubba Louie, I write. Are you saying the church is telling the outside world that Mormons won't get their own planet, but telling the inside world of Mormons that they will get their own planet, and that the church has both statements at the same time on its own official website? Like I said, playing fast and loose with the truth in the internet age is a dicey proposition. Lesser minds would call it lying. But is calling this pattern of deception lying too strong? Well, not if we use the definition advanced by the church in chapter 26 of its Gospel Fundamentals Manual, which says this, When we say things that are not true, we are lying. But that's not the only definition of lying. When we tell only part of the truth, we are lying. And there's also a third way we can lie. When we lead people to believe something that is not true, we are not being honest. The next section is titled, Why Lie? It therefore seems beyond question that the church is intentionally lying about this issue. I do not believe for one second that the anonymous scholars responsible for the offending paragraph in the Becoming Like God essay are unaware of the true state of things. They know exactly the true state of things. They know that this is a teaching of the church for crying out loud. Nor are those who also under official church sanction and approval publish the dissembling answer to the frequently asked question of whether Latter-day Saints believe they will get their own planet. That's a bit of a convoluted sentence. What I mean is that this statement that the church is promoting to the outside world that Mormons really don't believe that they're going to get their own planet is stated in two sources. One is in the essay and the other is in the frequently asked questions section on the newsroom page of the LDS Church website. Both sets of people who are responsible for writing those dissembling answers know what the real facts are. But this begs the question of why lie about this in the first place? 
The most obvious explanation is that the church is embarrassed by its belief that the resurrected righteous will create and rule over planets in the eternities, and therefore the church wishes to publicly deny it, that the church is desirous of appearing more in the mainstream of contemporary Christianity. The next section is the law of unintended consequences. I go on. If the goal is to get the Gentile world to think Mormons don't really believe this, the gambit seems to have paid off. As various news agencies widely reported the February 27, 2014 Associated Press story on this official church pronouncement, this got traction. Many news agencies reported on it, and most of them borrowed the Associated Press story in publishing it in the various media outlets. And here's what the Associated Press story said about this essay. The Mormon church is pushing back against the notion that members of the faith are taught they'll get their own planet in the afterlife, a misconception popularized in pop culture. That's the quote from the Associated Press story. So now the world thinks that Mormons getting their own planets is merely a notion and a misconception. Is this something to be cheered? Milk before meat is one thing, but actively denying belief in the meat is another thing entirely. Are we selling our birthright for a mess of pottage? Has the church learned nothing from the Paul H. Dunn debacle? Do Mormons not teach that one of the primary causes of the great apostasy was the church's willing compromise of revealed doctrine to conform to the philosophies of men? Impact on non-Mormons. What happens when non-Mormons who read the AP story discover the truth that Mormons actually do believe this? Will they not then conclude that the church lies about its beliefs? Will this lead them to think more highly of the LDS church? Will this lead them to have confidence in other church assertions? Or will suspicion and distrust be bred? So that's the impact on non-Mormons. What about the impact on Mormons? What happens when Mormons read these new pronouncements? If they are not well-versed in the historical record, will they not likely take them at face value and conclude that Latter-day Saints really do not believe they will have their own planet? Do we not face the possibility of balkanizing belief among Latter-day Saints? by creating a faction that believes the new pronouncements are correct, while leaving many others who believe the contradictory prophetic pronouncements of over a century. And when these factions collide theologically, as collide they must, what will be the result? Unity or disunity? And when the true facts are revealed through such collisions, will the result be greater faith in the church or less? And finally, the last section is titled, The Perils of Situational Ethics. This disparity between what the church tells the outside world of non-members versus what it tells the inside world of the faithful may have more alarming consequences. Not only does the church create an outside-inside theology, it also creates an outside-inside morality. By telling the outside world Mormons do not believe they will have their own planets, they are leading people to believe something that is not true. But the church teaches, when we lead people to believe something that is not true, we are not being honest. The church is thereby teaching its members that being dishonest is justifiable under some circumstances, that lying for the Lord is moral. And the church is teaching this by its own example. But if lying may be rationalized in this manner, what other immoral acts may also be justified 
so long as it is in service to the church and in obedience to priesthood leaders. A group of 120 immigrants learned the answer to this question on September 11, 1857, at a place called Mountain Meadows. If nothing else, the massacre that occurred there should be a constant reminder to Mormons of the very real perils of promoting such situational ethics. So that's the end of my essay, where I talk about how the church says one thing to the public and another thing to the members, and I use this particular example as a case in point. And we have seen at least two examples of this very same phenomenon in the October 2019 General Conference. The last one I talked about was the example with Elder Oaks talking to the public in General Conference about how everybody, homosexuals included, are destined for a kingdom of glory. But when he talks to the missionaries of the church, he uses the inside voice and he says a different message to the people who are in the church. To the public, he says, we're all bound for a kingdom of glory, regardless of whether we make it to the celestial kingdom. To those who are inside the church, he tells the real church teaching, which is that if you don't make it to the highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom, you're damned. And by the way, the very fact that Spencer Kimball in 1975 was comfortable teaching the idea about all the priesthood leaders assembled, possibly becoming gods and creating their own worlds, compared with the fact that we do not do so today and we would never hear anything like that in general conference today, is itself another example of how it is that when we're speaking to the outside world, we don't say the things that we say when we are speaking to the members of the church. Back in 1975, general priesthood session was an exercise in speaking much more to members of the church than it was to the public, and therefore Spencer Kimball was comfortable in teaching that concept. Today, general conference being much more widely available to the world and much more speaking to the public, therefore we don't hear that kind of teaching anymore in general conference. It's just another example of the same type of phenomenon from my point of view. Now, before I get done here, I've got to get to President Nelson's talk in the women's session on Saturday night in the October 2019 General Conference because he gives a very, very important message to the women, and I want to spend a little bit of time with it. Now, let me give you the thumbnail sketch of his message. We know that in a prior General Conference, President Oaks has already opened the door to talking to women about their having priesthood power, that anytime they receive a calling of any sort, it is by delegation of someone with the priesthood, and therefore, they are using delegated priesthood power. President Nelson is going to continue with that theme and expand it. And mainly the idea he's going to give is that any woman who has been endowed in the temple has received, through that endowment, priesthood power. And here he's going to tap into a very old teaching in the LDS Church, that women have priesthood power through going through the endowment ordinance in the temple. Now, that is a very important message. And if you consider the temple endowment, once again, I won't go into details because of the sacredness of the subject. And I know it's very sacred to many people who listen to this podcast. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. If not, you'll just have to take my word for it. During the course of the endowment, everybody who attends and is participating in the endowment puts on temple clothing. Now, they're not naked before that. They have clothing on before, but they put on robes over their clothing and other accoutrements. And this is done specifically in the context of the endowment that they may be prepared to officiate in the ordinances of the Aaronic priesthood. And the key here is that it's not just the men who do this. The women do the exact same thing. So the women, as well as the men, put on these temple clothes preparatory to officiating in the ordinances of the Aaronic priesthood. And then there are specific ordinances, if we can use that term, and apparently the context of the temple endowment 
uses that term to apply to what happens next, those tokens, those signs, and it used to be the penalties, right? And the names, those are all part of the ordinances of the Aaronic priesthood that women perform in the temple as well as the men. And they put on those robes in preparation to officiate in those ordinances. So women in the temple officiate in the ordinances of the Aaronic priesthood. Not only that, the robes are then reconfigured and changed in a certain manner, but it is done specifically so that the patrons may be prepared to officiate in the ordinances of the Melchizedek priesthood. And then certain signs, tokens, and used to be penalties, and names are conducted in the temple, not only by the men, but also by the women. So the women in the temple are receiving priesthood power and not only receiving priesthood power, they are performing priesthood ordinances in the temple, both Aaronic priesthood ordinances as well as Melchizedek priesthood ordinances in the temple. And President Nelson, to his credit, acknowledges this and actually identifies it. He doesn't go into quite as much detail as I did, understandably, but he acknowledges this. And I want to touch on some of those comments. But before I do that, I will also say that on the other side of this, however, President Nelson is very clear to say that even though women have priesthood power, if they have been endowed in the temple, they do not hold priesthood office. In other words, just because women can perform priesthood ordinances in the temple, Aaronic priesthood ordinances and Melchizedek priesthood ordinances, just because women can perform those in the temple, does not mean that they can perform ordinances outside the temple. The difficulty that President Nelson gets into with this talk, in my opinion, is trying to draw a distinction between priesthood power to perform ordinances in the temple that women have versus priesthood power they have outside the temple but they can't perform ordinances outside the temple. Once you're drawing a distinction that is becoming that narrow and these two categories are becoming so close together, you leave yourself in a position where women can start to ask the question, why? If I can perform priesthood ordinances in the temple, on what basis can I not perform priesthood ordinances outside the temple? This is the dangerous part of the game that President Nelson is playing. Now I say dangerous part because actually I'm presuming that he does not intend to lead women down this path of thinking. I do not believe that he is trying to lay the groundwork slowly and incrementally toward giving women the priesthood and allowing them to actually perform priesthood ordinances outside the temple. If that's what he's doing, then I will be absolutely amazed and flabbergasted. And I will sing praise to the man and I will put President Russell M. Nelson's name in the lyrics. I will say praise to the surgeon who communed with Jehovah and I will say millions shall know Brother Nelson again. But I doubt that that's the case. I think that what is more likely is that what he is trying to do is he is trying to throw the women a bone. That he is trying to make them happy and content with their state in the church. That they do not hold the priesthood. They have priesthood power, but they don't hold the priesthood. They can perform ordinances inside the temple, but they cannot perform them outside the temple. And they cannot hold priesthood keys and they cannot hold priesthood office. I think what is more likely is that he's trying to keep women happy with their state by describing their current state in exalted and wonderful and flattering terms to the women with the hope that this will be a palliative and keep them happy in their second class role in the church to the men who actually do hold the priesthood and not just have priesthood power. Okay, let's get to what it is he says now that I've actually commented and analyzed his talk before getting to what it is he said. Let's go over some of the things he says here before we close. Here's the first thing he says. How I yearn for you to understand that the restoration of the priesthood is just as relevant to you as a woman as it is to any man. Because the Melchizedek priesthood has been restored, both covenant-keeping women and men have access to all the spiritual blessings of the church. 
Or we might say, to all the spiritual treasures the Lord has for his children. Now, this comment isn't anything remarkable, but he's going to go on and elaborate upon it as I talked about in the introduction to this talk. He goes on to say, those who are endowed in the house of the Lord receive a gift of God's priesthood power by virtue of their covenant, along with the gift of knowledge to know how to draw upon that power. So those who are endowed in the house of the Lord receive the gift of God's power, of God's priesthood power, and that applies equally to women as well as to men. Now, of course, this raises the question of if women receive priesthood power by virtue of being endowed in the temple, how do they exercise that priesthood power outside the temple? And here's where he punts. He doesn't give any direction on this, and this may or may not be a mistake on his part, but he leaves it up to the Holy Ghost. He says, now you might be saying to yourself, this sounds wonderful, but how do I do it? How do I draw the Savior's power into my life. See, he's sort of equivocating on his terms there. It goes from priesthood power to the Savior's power, which is not quite so threatening to the male leadership. And his answer is, you won't find this process spelled out in any manual. The Holy Ghost will be your personal tutor as you seek to understand what the Lord would have you know and do. He goes on to say later in his talk, now may I clarify several additional points with respect to women and priesthood. When you are set apart to serve in a calling under the direction of one who holds priesthood keys, now notice the distinction there. When you as a woman are set apart to serve in a calling under the direction of one who holds priesthood keys. Okay, now there are two categories, see. The one who holds priesthood keys has to be a man. You being a woman cannot be the one setting somebody else apart. You are the one who is being set apart. In the language of 2 Nephi chapter 2, you are not the one acting, you are the one being acted upon. So he does at several junctures draw the important distinction that women do not have priesthood keys and they cannot perform priesthood ordinances outside the temple and they cannot set people apart. Once again, he says, when you are set apart to serve in a calling under the direction of one who holds priesthood keys, such as your bishop or state presidency, that wouldn't be a woman, that'd be a guy, you are given priesthood authority to function in that calling. He goes on, similarly, in the holy temple, you are authorized to perform and officiate in priesthood ordinances every time you attend. And he emphasizes the every time, every time you attend. And he says, your temple endowment prepares you to do so. So here is where he talks about the temple endowment authorizing women to perform and officiate in priesthood ordinances every time you attend, but no further, not outside the temple. And it is a strange position to maintain that we would think that the ordinances in the temple are much higher than the ordinances performed outside the temple. We are baptized when we are eight if we are members of the church and lucky enough to be placed in a faithful LDS family per President Eyring's previous talk, and that can be performed by the Aaronic priesthood. And the consistent teaching of Mormonism is that the ordinances in the temple are higher ordinances than those performed outside the temple. They are more sacred ordinances. They are holier ordinances. They are higher. So how is it that you can maintain the position that women inside the temple are authorized every time they attend to officiate in the most sacred ordinances, and yet they cannot perform lesser ordinances outside the temple, even such ordinances as baptism of children at age eight or baptism of anybody into the LDS church. It doesn't seem to make any sense logically, and yet that's the position that President Nelson is going to maintain. Once again, this is why I say it's a dangerous game that he's playing. I am glad that he is acknowledging these facts and presenting them to the women of the church. I think that's all good, but I do think 
that if members think enough about these teachings, they may be led down a similar path of thought to similar conclusions that I am proposing to you right now. He goes on in his talk. If you are endowed, see, that's the fundamental issue. You have to be endowed. You have to have gone through the temple endowment and been given the power and authority, as it says in the endowment, to officiate in the ordinances of the Aaronic and the Melchizedek priesthood. If you are endowed, he says, but not currently married to a man who bears the priesthood, and someone says to you, I'm sorry you don't have the priesthood in your home. Please understand that that statement is incorrect. Kudos to you, President Nelson. He goes on. You may not have a priesthood bearer in your home. And he emphasizes the word bearer. You may not have a priesthood bearer in your home, but you have received and made sacred covenants with God in his temple. From those covenants flows an endowment of his priesthood power upon you. And remember, if your husband should die, you would preside in your home. I think this is a wonderful sentiment. I think it is empowering. I think he's going a long way toward applying the teachings that are contained in the endowment to the women of the church as they rightly should be. But once again, he will stop short of going beyond that. He will still make the distinction between men who hold the keys of the priesthood and the offices in the priesthood who can set apart women for their callings versus the women who cannot hold those offices or possess those keys. And he indicates this in his very next statement in the talk. After saying that women have the priesthood in their home, of course, that's really only in the condition that there is no male priesthood bearer in the home, that women do have the priesthood in their home, he moderates his message. He pulls back from what he's saying by stating this, as a righteous endowed Latter-day Saint woman, you speak and teach with power and authority from God. Okay, well, speak and teach. Okay, you can speak in church, you can teach in church, but that's not performing ordinances in church outside the temple, and it's not holding priesthood keys or priesthood office. You speak and teach with power and authority from God. Whether by exhortation or conversation, we need your voice teaching the doctrine of Christ. And then once again, putting them in the subservient role of non-priesthood office holders, he states this, we need your input in family, ward, and state councils. Not we need you to preside there, but we need your input in family, ward, and state councils. Your participation is essential and never ornamental, which is a nice sentiment as far as it goes. However, it's very clear from what he's saying is that they are second-class citizens within family councils, within ward councils, within state councils. They do not get to lead, but they do get to have some sort of input and participation. So the overall message I get from this is that what President Nelson is doing is trying to show women that they have legitimate priesthood power. He cites the temple to show that they actually perform ordinances of the priesthood every time they go to the temple. But on the other hand, that does not mean that they get to hold the priesthood outside the temple. They hold priesthood power, and this appears to be the big distinction that he wants to make. They hold priesthood power, but they don't hold the priesthood. They cannot perform priesthood ordinances outside the temple, even lesser ordinances compared to the ordinances in the temple. They cannot hold priesthood office outside the temple, and even though they can now attend the ward and state councils, and they can have input in those councils, they cannot preside in those councils because guess what? The role of presiding in those councils and leading in the church is still reserved exclusively for men who hold the priesthood itself, who hold priesthood office, and who hold priesthood keys. That is something that is still not going to be available to women, and hopefully they'll be satisfied with priesthood power 
and not start clamoring for the priesthood itself. So that is the last talk in General Conference Women's Session Saturday night in October of 2019 by President Russell M. Nelson. That's about all the time I have for now. In the midst of this pandemic, please remember, wash your hands often with hot water and soap. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. 